Thank you, Pastor Joel. Indeed, the feeling's very mutual. I remember our first lunch at Red Robin there off of 273, and our relationship has only grown since then as uh, one of the things, a great blessing about being a pastor in the same location for almost four decades is you get to know a lot of people, and it's great to see some familiar faces here, many who I'm seeing for the very first time, of course, but um, also to get to know many pastors in the area. And I've always uh, valued that as many of our pastors in this community have. One of the blessings we have is that guys really don't look at our churches as our own little kingdoms. We understand there's one church with many locations, and so it has been a tremendous encouragement, very significant in my life of, uh, of that fellowship, of the accountability, of the encouragement. Uh, even in this last year during COVID, a number of the pastors, maybe 10, 12 pastors every week would get on a Zoom call and talk about our experiences and, and how we're navigating this and how we can move forward together. So it's a real blessing, Pastor Joel, and I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity I am semi-retired. Uh, we're still working at the Bible Fellowship Church of Newark, 10 to 12 hours a week or something like that. But um, as you know, you, never, you, you retire from a position. You don't really retire from ministry. And so one of the great joys I'm having now is to be able to share the Word of God in different places, places that I have come to really appreciate and love, and, and uh, at, at the churches of pastors also whom I've come to love. What great worship here this morning. You know, some think that the stuff in the beginning is preliminary. I never thought that. It's all a part of our worship, and I appreciate so much even the giving aspect. That's an expression of our worship, of a grateful heart unto the Lord, and the songs that we sang beginning with, How Great Thou Art, and indeed how great He is. We'll talk about how good He is today. And then also that song, Amazing Grace and Unfailing Love. Isn't that the truth? And then, of course, expressing our dependence upon him. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every moment I need you. And I think the longer we walk the Christian life, the more poignantly we realize how much we need him every day, desperately need him, and how grateful we are for his grace and his goodness to us. At Bible Fellowship Church of Newark, we have supported a missionary couple, family, uh, who have been serving with crew. They've become very close. We've supported them for, again, the whole time I've been there. Uh, they got married a few years after I had come there. But the husband, John, began to have a debilitating disease that would cause blindness. They lost a 16-year-old, 15 or 16-year-old son, tragically, while serving in, uh, in Romania or Hungary. And um, this blindness then also... Uh, was uh, progressing in his life and ultimately a number of years back left him legally blind. And so he has made significant adaptations to, as you can imagine, after seeing for 50, 55 years of life and then to be blind. He was sharing in our church one time and he shared these words. If I would write the story of my own life, I would leave out the chapter on blindness. And I remember sitting there, listening to that, soon after my wife had suddenly passed away, and those words struck me. You know, we all have chapters in our lives that we would leave out. The loss of my wife is a chapter that I would leave out if I were writing my own story. And we all have those chapters in our lives that we would leave out. Perhaps it's a chronic illness 
or chronic pain that you've had to live with. Perhaps it's a wayward child that, that has lost his or her way. It's maybe a broken relationship, maybe a sudden job loss that came out of the blue. Perhaps it's an abusive past, maybe even an abusive present that you're living even today, a financial crisis, or again, maybe an untimely death of a loved one. I don't know what it is. God knows what it is in your life. Perhaps a chapter that you would leave out. Perhaps you're in the middle of such a chapter right now, and you have been begging God, God, would you turn the page? Would you end this chapter in my life, and would you begin to write a new chapter? So I want to ask a question, and I trust answer it with a psalm this morning. How are we to interpret these difficult chapters in our lives? How do we make sense out of such chapters in light of God's big story of his goodness and grace? If we're going to make sense of it, if we're going to navigate it, it must begin with an accurate view of God. Without a right perception of God, such experiences that we all have in this broken world will leave us disillusioned, confused, disheartened, perhaps even shaking our fist, angry at God or others. This morning I want to turn your attention to a psalm. I want to turn your attention to Psalm 118. This psalm provides a view of God that that will help us interpret these chapters in our lives that we would never choose, but God, in his sovereignty, has chosen them for us. This psalm provides ample evidence of a God who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our love and our adoration. I've entitled the message, God's Enduring Goodness and Steadfast Love. Now, in the immediate context, in Psalm 117, we have this very brief but powerful call to the nations to praise the Lord and to extol Him for His enduring faithfulness and His steadfast love. And then on the other side of Psalm 118, we have the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, this lengthy declaration of confidence in and love for the Word of God. In Psalm 117, we see that we're able, and in fact, we're called to respond with praise, even in the midst of the brokenness of this world. And then in Psalm 119, we we see how we appropriate the promises of God's enduring goodness and steadfast love. And then there's this this elaboration of how we, we appropriate those promises to us. And then in between these two psalms, we find this unpacking of God's goodness and his steadfast love. And so the psalm begins and ends with the very theme of the verse. Look at verse 1, if you have a device or your Bible, or just listen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the first verse. Go to the back of the psalm, and the last verse, we read this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So I want you to understand this very clearly. An understanding of God's enduring goodness and his steadfast love, an understanding, a grasping of that 
reality and truth about God will fuel a life of praise to him and a life of trust in him. I am going to this morning read the entire psalm. I appreciated so much that recitation. Well done. We never, ever can memorize the word of God too much. But listen carefully to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. I wish I could recite it for you, but I can't. So I'll read it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper, my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verses 1 through 4. Repeat this refrain. 
The Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let the people of God say, Israel, let the house of Aaron, that is the priesthood, the spiritual leaders say the same. Let those who fear the Lord, all who belong to God, Jew and Gentile alike, let them declare the goodness of the Lord that his steadfast love endures forever. We know repetition in the word of God is for emphasis, something that we need to take very much in mind. And so this is God's tool, the way that he says, this is something that you need to remember, that the Lord is good. Altogether, all the time, good, and his steadfast love endures forever. You know, every one of us wake up each day with a fundamental view of God, our perception of God. Whether we are consciously aware of it or not, we all have a concept of God, a view of him, of his nature, and of his character. That perception of God is shaped by a variety of factors. It's shaped by our background, the teaching that we've sat under, the, the background of our, of our own father, of our family experiences, of our church experiences, of our life experiences. It's shaped by teaching that perhaps you've sat under as a child growing up or as a young adult. It's shaped by the depth of our own understanding of Scripture or lack thereof. But know this, if you are going to navigate life in this broken world in a way that honors God, if you are going to make sense out of your own suffering and brokenness in this world, which we all experience, it is imperative that you fundamentally believe that God is a good God an altogether and all the time good God who loves you with a steadfast love. That has got to be the undergirding. It has got to be those pilings that are going to, or those pinions that are going to hold you up. That must be an anchor truth for us. If we're going to navigate life in a broken world in a way that honors God and doesn't leave us disillusioned and angry, when things are going well, it's easy. God, you're a good God. Oh, we receive the blessings of your hand. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But when life takes an unexpected and an unwelcome turn, it's much more difficult. Say, God, you're a good God. So do you truly believe that this morning? Fundamentally, in that depth of your heart, do you believe all the time that he's an altogether good God whose steadfast love follows and pursues his children wherever they go and for an eternity? Let's unpack this psalm this morning and learn some things. In verses 5 through 18 of this psalm, there's an elaboration on God's enduring goodness and his steadfast love. And let me say it this way, God's enduring goodness and steadfast love are present in our brokenness. So after these four verses of a declaration of God's goodness and steadfast love, notice immediately following the declaration of God's goodness, David cries out, out of my distress, I called on the Lord, my enemies, the nations surrounded me, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. Immediately we see that God's goodness and his steadfast love do not isolate or insulate his children from distress, from heartache, 
from pain, from crisis in this broken world. We know that because we've experienced it. That's no aha moment for any one of you. Asaph said in Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel. The declaration of God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, he would declare, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. When I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he could not make sense out of the situation and experiences of his life. They didn't add up to what he knew about God. Now, as the psalm progresses, of course, he does. He says all of that was true until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord, until he saw the Lord clearly, and then God enabled him and extended grace in his understanding So in the midst of the brokenness of this life, we've got to look for evidence of God's goodness. We all experience the brokenness, but we don't all see the goodness, and we need to look for that, evidence of his goodness. This next section describes the ways that God's goodness and steadfast love are evident in our lives if we are going to pay attention. You know, we define God's goodness in a certain way. God defines his goodness in a different way. We perceive his goodness as God giving us a life of uninterrupted ease, of our lives being pain-free, of life going our way. That's our understanding of goodness. When our circumstances line up with our expectations, God Oh, your goodness is wonderful. You just pour out your blessings. But God's view of goodness includes those things, of course. Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to receive with thanksgiving all of those good gifts that God gives us to enjoy in this world. But God's view of goodness, while including those things, also includes suffering because of the good that he produces in our lives through it. So it's not random, chaotic, suffering with lack of purpose. No, it is part and parcel of a broken world, but it is also an evidence of God's goodness. So let's look at this. What ways do we see and embrace God's goodness and steadfast love? First of all, we know that he's on our side. And he hears when I call upon him. Verses 6 through 9, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. Two times the Lord is on my side. He is my advocate. His goodness is seen in the fact that he has my back. His goodness is seen in the fact that he always has my best interests at heart, even when I don't see those things as my best interests. He's not out to harm me, but he's out to help me. Sometimes it hurts, just as when we have to go through surgery. It hurts, but it's not to harm us. It's to help us heal. When my daughters were growing up, and still today, I always wanted them to know that I was on their team. And I hope they always have known that, that they would disappoint me. And I surely 
disappointed them at times, but they could always count on this, that their father, their dad was on their team. When you embrace the truth that God is good and that He loves you with a steadfast, eternal love, that He's on your side, then you can have confidence in Him and you can take refuge in Him. You can flee to Him. You can trust Him. You need not fear anything. You need not fear man. You need not fear death. You need not fear illness. You can know that He is at work for good purposes even in your current pain and suffering. I mentioned that God's goodness is present with us in our suffering, but I want to take it a step further because I think it's so important. Not only is God's goodness present in our suffering, our suffering is evidence. It is evidence of God's goodness. How can I say that? Because suffering is part and parcel of God's work in our lives. Because He's doing a work of refinement. Because He's doing a work of grace. Because He's doing a work of conforming us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because He's working in our lives in such a way that go far beyond our convenience and our, our, our comfort level. That's what we're consumed with. But God's consumed with so much more. He who began a good work in you will bring it to perfect completion. And suffering is a part of that sanctification process. Not only present in our suffering, but suffering is an evidence of His goodness in our lives. He is my helper. God is not a distant bystander in my life. He's not an aloof observer. We see his goodness in the fact that he is present, an ever-present help, as Psalm 42.1 says, an ever-present help in time of trouble. So our God, our helper, intervenes. He comes alongside of Now, we may wish he would intervene earlier. We may say, God, would you answer this prayer sooner rather than later? But our concept of time is often different from God's concept of time. But he's not a distant bystander. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete, the one who comes alongside of, the one who helps us. Since I'm sort of retired, I've been able to play golf again a few times. My whole life, I've, I used to play golf more. I stopped in the last 10 years, starting to play again. I've always wanted to take lessons. I've never been able to do that. As a result, every ball I hit off the tee is a slice. It goes that way, to the right. So you just compensate, name over here, and then it'll end up down here. That's just the way it works. So I've read magazines about how to swing the golf club. They don't help me one iota. I've watched TV shows, you know, that hasn't helped me one iota. What would help me is if a gifted golfer would come alongside of me and sort of put his hands on my hands and show me exactly what grip, show me exactly where to put my feet, and, and, and just be right there and show me how to swing and, hey, maybe I would break a hundred once in a while. The Lord is our helper. He's right there with us. He puts His arms around us. He's in us as our helper. 
He is my strength. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He's my strength. That is, he is my sufficiency. He is the one who sustains me through trials. You know, one of God's promises that we cling to is found in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Many of you are familiar with that. Maybe not all. God is faithful. Yes, he is. And he will not let you be tempted, or same word, tested, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, with the test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Please understand that promise. It does not mean that God will not test you beyond your human strength. After all, we're often challenged with things that are beyond what I can handle in my own strength. But what he is promising is that he will not bring anything into your life that will be beyond what you can handle with him as your helper, with him as your sustainer, with him as your strength. Paul writes about the experiences that he he has had, terrible experiences that that God put into his life, 2 Corinthians 4, 8. In our own strength, we are afflicted in every way. In our own strength, we are perplexed. In our own strength, we are persecuted. In our own strength, we are struck down sometimes. But in his strength, Paul would say, in other words, with the Lord as our sustainer, we are not crushed. With the Lord as my helper, We are not driven to despair. With the Lord sustaining me, we are not forsaken. We are not destroyed. And Paul would say in in his strength, the life of Jesus is made manifest in our flesh, even in those times of suffering. The Lord is my helper. The Lord's your helper, ever-present. The Lord is your strength, your sufficiency. The psalmist goes on to say, he is my song. That is, he is my source of joy in a broken world. Because the Lord is our refuge, we trust him. And we need not fear. Because the Lord is my helper and sustainer, we are able to rejoice even in suffering. Listen to just a couple of verses. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can you do that? It's a supernatural act of the Spirit, by the way. But how do we do that? Paul goes on to say, knowing we know something about what God is doing through the brokenness, through the suffering in our world. We know that suffering produces endurance. And that that endurance produces character and character produces hope. We know something that God is doing. Therefore, we can rejoice or find joy in our relationship with the Lord, even in those valleys. Or 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say, The sufferings of this world, these light and momentary afflictions, 
they're not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us in eternity, a glory that will far outweigh them all. So how can our heart rejoice in the face of suffering? Only because we know what God is doing in our lives through that suffering. He's refining our faith. He's refining our character. Paul Tripp speaks of two kinds of grace in the face of suffering. He talks about the grace of release. He talks about the grace of refinement. You see, we pray for and we long for the grace of release. Lord, get me out of this situation. Lord, deliver me from this situation. Remove my suffering. But God is often more interested in the grace of refinement. Bill, I'm doing a work in your life that goes far beyond how comfortable you are or how, quote, happy you are. And so do we pray, Lord, through this, would you mold me? Would you shape me in this crucible more and more into what you desire for me? A crucible, I think the term comes from a laboratory, but in this heat, two elements go into this crucible, and in that heat, it comes out, and it's different. That which went in changes, and it comes out something different. That's what God's doing in crucibles in our lives. He's working in us. I recently had a conversation with a man in his mid-50s who told me that he had a specific affliction in his life 40 years earlier when he was a teenager. But he looked back upon that and he said, I thank God for that affliction. And it was a serious affliction. It was cancer, as a matter of fact. It changed his teenage years significantly. But he told me that, and he explained why, but he said that affliction proved to be a rescue for me from a potential harmful life path that I likely would have taken. God's altogether good. He's altogether sovereign. He is my helper. He is my strength. He is my song. And finally, he is my rescue. Verse 14, the Lord has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And so from here, the psalmist identifies the goodness and the steadfast love of God that opened the gates of righteousness that we may enter through them. You see, this is God's big story. The big story that subsumes all of our, quote, little stories. It is his big story of the provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. So verses 21 and 22, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Surely David is asking for deliverance from a very specific distress that he was in. The nations were surrounded, the enemies were getting the upper hand. But make no mistake, while that was his cry, God in this psalm points us to the ultimate rescuer, Jesus Christ. Rejected by his people, who became the cornerstone. It is God's rescue plan, as verse 23 declares, this is God's doing. This is the Lord's doing. This this stone that the, that the people re- and the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of our faith and of our confidence in eternity. And so he says, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And God's big story and our personal story merges there. Verse 24 states, 
This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How often do we hear that verse? You get up in the morning, oh Lord, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. It's, it's true. Every day we have is a gift from God. Lord, you've made this day. Help me to be re rejoice in it. But that's not the day that is being referred to here. This verse let me, well, let me read these verses, 21 to 24, and you can get the, the sense of it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus, of course. This is the Lord's doing. From before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, the day the Lord made in this context was the day Jesus Christ became the sacrifice for our sin. The day that is being referred to here is the day that Jesus Christ was offered up to bear the wrath of God in our stead. The day that's referred to here is the day that has made possible our rescue from sin. The day that was the culmination of God's enduring goodness and steadfast love, all culminating in that day when Jesus Christ took upon himself the sins, our sins. That's the day that we're called to rejoice and be glad in forever. And here's the final point I want, you to, I want to emphasize. It is only because of that day 2,000 years ago that we can experience God's enduring goodness and steadfast love today and tomorrow and every day of our lives. Without that day, 2,000 years ago when Christ hung upon that cross and, of course, the resurrection that followed, without that day, we would be without hope. Without that day, we would be crushed today. Without that day, we would be driven to despair. Without that day, we would be forsaken. Without that day, we would be destroyed. But thanks be to God, because of that day, we can face today. You can face today. And all that today is holding for you. And you can face it with joy in Jesus, your Savior. You can face it with a confidence in Him and a hope in Him, no matter what you are being faced with today. I don't know your stories, but God does. My guess would be there's some dark, dark valleys represented in this congregation. That day, in God's big story, is the grandest and most glorious expression of God's enduring goodness and steadfast love. And that day makes your personal story significant. It gives your personal story and all that's in it meaning. Today, in the midst of your greatest challenge, your deepest disappointment, your darkest journey, know this and find joy in it. Find comfort in it. Find peace in it. Find rest in it. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is your strength. He's your sustainer. The Lord is your song. 
He alone is able to bring you joy deep down. Not a backslap and happy, happy, not a backslap and happiness, a deep abiding joy that is seated in the relationship that you have with God as his son or as his daughter. And the Lord is your rescuer, he is your salvation. So if you're going to navigate life in this broken world in a way that honors God, if you're going to make sense out of your own suffering and brokenness, it is imperative that you fundamentally believe that God is a good God. Altogether, all the time, good God who loves you with a steadfast love. Some of you know my story. I'm not going to belabor it, except to say that this coming September 2nd will be five years that I walked out of Christiana Hospital with my four daughters, three sons-in-law, and I left my wife's dead body behind, her lifeless body behind. It was a gorgeous day, altogether blue sky, early September. But I walked into darkness. My wife, mother of four, grandmother of five at the time, got sick, went into the hospital for a routine procedure, and two hours later, all hell broke loose, pardon the expression, and she bled to death. No time to say goodbye. And my, me, 42 years of marriage to my childhood sweetheart, and my four daughters, and three sons-in-laws, and five granddaughters, we were crushed. And I use that word, humanly speaking. It was a weight that we could not have borne alone. But I will tell you this, from the beginning, something went wrong. It was a routine procedure. And so we had to come to grips very early on. God was there. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't distant. He wasn't distracted. He was there. And we also had to come to grips with the truth that God is an altogether, all the time, good God who does not do things to us to harm us. But he has his good purposes in everything that he brings into our lives. I remember people sometimes feel they have to be an apologist for God. Well, you know, he, does, he allows things to happen in this program. I remember saying, well, if he allows it, he could not allow it. So not only is he a good God all the time, you better also know that he's a sovereign God all the time. He's in control. Nothing comes into our lives except through his faithful, gracious, good hands if we belong to him. I remember praying, God, Help me to put one foot in front of the other, and Lord, put my feet down gently. And the girls and I, our families and I, we just pulled together. And, and by the way, I want to say this. Just because we belong to Jesus Christ by faith doesn't mean that our pain hurts one iota less. It doesn't mean that our grief is one bit less than someone who doesn't have Jesus Christ. The pain is deep. Grief is a hard, hard, long journey. A marathon. My girls will never have their mother back. But I remember saying, I've got to choose to believe what I know to be true about God in my head and wait for my heart to catch up. By the grace of God, he's met me where, he met me where I was. I believe he'd met, he's met my daughter. Doesn't mean, the, doesn't mean the grief is not still there. But over the course of time, God is using that. So, that story. Unbeknownst to me at the time, 
there was a woman in the Poconos 200 miles north who three weeks before my wife died, her husband died after 34 years of marriage. Found cancer, three weeks later he was gone with the Lord. And by the sovereignty of God, back in October, through a mutual pastor, Mindy and I met. And these two grieving hearts. Saw God at work in our relationship that ultimately led us to be married on May 16th. That's God's goodness. It's God's sovereignty. But let me declare this, and I want to be very clear about it. If God had not led me to Mindy and led Mindy to me. By the way, she heard her husband left three children and grandchildren as well. If God had not brought us together, he would still be a good God. I remember praying, Lord, you know I don't want to be alone the rest of my life, but I would always pray, but God, if that's your plan for me, then I know your grace will be sufficient. But I'd always add, but Lord, you know I don't want to be alone. I wanted to leave that, you know, that'd be the last thing he remembered hearing from me, you know. I don't know what God's doing in your life. Again, I just want to be clear. It, it, it doesn't mean that every story in our little stories is going to end up in this fashion. It may be where I, I may have been called to be alone the rest of my life, and I, I pray by God's grace I would have declared him still to be a good God because he would have been. I remember at 5 a.m. on that Friday morning, playing Lauren Daigle's song, Trust in You. When you don't move the mountains, we want you to move. When you don't part the waters, we want you to part. When you don't answer, provide answers to the cries of our hearts, still I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. That became our theme song, sort of as a family. Are you trusting him today? Certainly as Savior, he's our rescuer, our salvation, but how about as your helper? How about as your sustainer? How about as your strength? How about as your joy? So let me end. Sometimes preachers have four conclusions. But let me really end going back to that missionary. Because that missionary, before he sat down in our congregation that morning, said something profound in my, in my mind. Again, this was not long after my wife had died suddenly. Before he sat down, he said these words, after saying, if I would write the story of my own life, I would leave out the chapter on blindness. And then he said this, but who am I? Who am I to think that I could write a better story of my life than my altogether good and my altogether sovereign God? And that just hit me. God, you've written the story. And you've written my story for your glory. And he's written your stories. And he's writing your stories and my story for, for, for his glory. And he says, trust me. I'm a good God. All the time, all together. And so the psalmist ends, you are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. And I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures.
forever.